listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is Thursday, July 16th, 2020, and my guest here in the studio is Dr. Andre Abrahamian, Senior Adjunct Fellow at Pacific Forum and formerly 2018-2019 Corret, that's not a misspelling, Corret Fellow at APARC Stanford. Before that, he was Executive Director and Director of Research at Chaucon Exchange. He's here to talk with me about his latest book, Being in North Korea, and his experience of, surprise, surprise, being in North Korea. Thanks and welcome to the show, Andre. Thanks for having me, Jacko. First of all, Lots of books have been written about North Korea in the last decade. Are you aware of this? Yeah, I, I have a couple. When I first became interested in North Korea in the late 1990s, it was at that stage still possible to read all the English language books that had been written about that country. Uh, this is no longer even a pipe dream. Some books are written with the most minimal experience in or knowledge of North Korea. There's even a book called Five Days in North Korea. That reached a publisher, can you believe it? Um, apologies to the author whom I do not know personally. <laughs> there are other highly regarded books about North Korea written by people who have never been there. What would you say about the state of the uh, sort of the offering, you know, the North Korean library in English that's out there? Sure. I mean, I can think of at least half a dozen uh, books that have been squeezed out of a three or five day trip to the Hermit Kingdom. I'm making air quotes. Yeah. Only you can see this. Um, and. I think, in a way, my book offers a bit of a corrective. Ah, not a corrective. I, I mean, know, well, leave your because that's the next question. No, what did I've your book to, offer? I've jumped this? ahead. You've Sorry, jumped I'm, ahead. Do I'm, not preempt. I'm too eager to to sell my wares. Full disclosure, ladies and gentlemen, we have actually known each other for a decade, so this is uh, it's all quite natural. Yes, uh, that's true. Yeah, I mean, there there is a lot of stuff out there now. In the past decade or so. Interest in North Korea has increased, mm. if if anything, and that's provided uh, a market. Also, think that while publishing is really hard, you you can self-publish. There are a lot more avenues to get right. something out and e-publishing, etc. Yeah, but when a new book comes, like when you hear that a new book is out about North Korea, are you inclined to sort of groan and roll your eyes, or do you well, oh, let's have a look at that? And do you pick it up when you pass one of the bookshops? I mean, I guess it it depends on on the book. I, I think with uh, a lot, I'm content to read the the summary yeah. <laughs> uh, and also wait for wait for I guess peers of mine in the field to review it and and see if it if there's anything new. To read, but then also to be honest, I think what you end up doing is reading parts of a lot of books as right. well. And I was just chatting with Ankit Panda, and he has a book coming out, and he explicitly said, you know, you can skip the first, you know, quarter of the book. That's for that's for the con for context for general readers. But I'm the I'm the back half. I'm very excited to read. But apologies to Ankit. I will follow your advice probably and skip the first bit. Spoiler alert there for a listen. Okay, so having said that, why did you feel the need and motivation to write this book, Being in North Korea, and what does it add to the body of knowledge about that place? I mean, I, I have a, a particular experience that I think is is unique and was a part of an organization that I think has also been trying to do something unique in North Korea. So I think the value add there is capturing a particular moment in that country this organization and my personal history and getting it getting it down i also think i have a view of the country and a writing style that probably differentiates the book from uh, from most others in this sort of subfield of on the ground are you more reflexive Sort of think considering, cons maybe I'm getting it wrong here, but considering your own positionality and being more sensitive to how you describe things, and you know, yeah, I like to, I like to think so. Indeed, there, there's a sort of an addendum to the book where I explicitly address the fact that I'm a part of a tradition of Westerners coming to the Orient, the mysterious Orient, and then offering to explain it oh, to good. a Western audience. And I mean, there's there's you know that's something I've struggled with for nigh on a decade mm. now. You know, how do you avoid being a uh, quote-unquote orientalist? How can you describe a place fairly when it is so alien to the, you know, the, the culture that you've come from? I don't know if I have good answers to those, but at least by addressing the question, I think you're, it's, a, it's an important process to be honest with yourself as, right. an, well, as an author. And uh, Good, that's what I, I think I was getting at there. Uh, what do most people who go to North Korea and then write about it get wrong about that place? And I think we'll, we'll come back to governments and policymakers about what they get wrong about North Korea, but I'm just focusing on, on writers at this stage. I, I think describing North Korea is generally informed by 
by two things. First, the preconceptions that you bring to the place. And a lot of people go in being like, well, this place is abjectly horrible at all times for all people that live here. And then there are relatively few, but also some that come in being like, well, you know, I don't trust the media and the media has been lying to me my whole life and the Americans are imperialists. And so, uh, you know, they go in looking for kind of the answers the North Koreans are trying to give. And then a lot depends on when you arrive. So if you arrive on a weekday in the wintertime where things are kind of grim and people are bundled up and commuting to work, like it looks it looks unpleasant. If you arrive in the weekend in the summer and families are out having picnics and strolling around and the fun fairs are full of people, you might be like, well, yeah, this place isn't so bad. Are you I saying that Korea say. has four seasons, four distinct seasons? K- Korea does have four seasons. That was, that was one of the first things I learned about the... Uh, Korea when I arrived in the early 2000s. Also, kimchi prevents SARS. And cancer. So many things. A lot of things. Um, Okay. When people ask you what North Korea is like, you say 80% normal, 20% profoundly weird. I got that quote from your your book. Can you unpack that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah. I mean, this one of the struggles when it comes to understanding and describing North Korea is when to approach it as basically a normal developing country with a lot of the same challenges that developing economies and societies face everywhere and then when to understand it as completely unique and a real outlier and i think that quote what i was thinking through is sort of daily life actually Mm. so if you look at the daily life of an average north korean it's in many ways similar to people around the world get up if you've got kids you know you get them off to school you worry about their grades you know you try to make sure they're well fed and clothed You try to climb the ladder in whatever organization you work for, try to maintain your marriage. Uh, If you have the space and the money, you try and drink with your friends on the weekend. You know, all that stuff is, that's the, the stuff of daily life and it's pretty normal. But then layered on top of it is this really, really strange to us political culture where the state is so dominant and loyalty is demanded to a degree that is, I think, unprecedented in the world that it creates these these stresses and sort of like distortive forces that that need to be addressed as well. Okay, there's a, a, following on from that. There's a tendency in Western media to focus on the weirdness of uh, North Korea. Uh, you mentioned uh, in your book the holes in one that Kim Jong Il supposedly got during his lifetime. There's also that famous unicorn mm-hmm. lair story from some years ago. Uh, people like you push back on that and quite rightly. But is North Korea really just another country? I mean, can we normalize it completely? No, I don't think completely. Um, and indeed, it is it is weird in so many ways. But uh, those news stories, I, at the end of the day, the world only has so much attention to devote to North Korea. There's a whole globe of problems and issues to face. And not that many people are going to be interested in reading a story about the semi-privatization of the fishing industry or the way markets have proliferated around the country mm. and changed the way people consume. Eh. But the weird stuff, the the things about haircuts, which may not be true, the claim that there's a unicorn lair near Pyongyang, which was actually most mostly a mistranslation. You know, those things grab the attention. And so do stories about the missile and nuclear programs, which are scary. That's sort of one category. Um, and then there's also some capacity to consume news about the human rights violations mm. of the country, which are, again, in, in this day and age, almost unique. Does the North Korean state also uh, try to promote a, a vision of it or an image of itself as being really unique and not like any other place and some, somehow special? Yeah, I think I think they're torn in a way between trying to present uh, the face of a modern, normal society, but also emphasizing that they are absolutely isolated from the normal practices of the world in some other ways. You've seen that recently on social media, on YouTube. There's a couple of channels now mm-hmm. on Twitter that they really try to emphasize just how ordinary a capital city Pyongyang is. You know, at the same time, when you watch their news, for example, the kind of rhetoric and imagery they use is so far beyond the 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 norm. Especially when they're the country feels it's in a conflict with another country, it automatically situates itself outside of what we would consider normal or even acceptable 
behavior. You know, the way they describe President Park and Hay, for mm. example, or the images of Obama, that, President Obama that they had in cartoon form. Mm. You know, that's that's not normal stuff. Can we uh, speak of a, a kind of North Korean exceptionalism in the same way that there is an American exceptionalism? Oh, yeah, that's that's an interesting way to, to frame it. Yeah, you know, I, I guess in some in some ways, every country sees itself as as having a unique and important story in the world. That's part of like the national myth that you that you sell to your own people in order to motivate them and bind, you know, millions and millions of people who never get to meet each other uh, into one unit. In North Korea, I just think it, it seems more apparent because of how how much control the state has over narratives. They don't really compete with much else because the state is so dominant in that story they tell mm. to their own people. And I think that story is interesting because one thing, I guess, to go back to a previous question that people miss is that story does resonate with a lot of North Koreans. So it isn't just repression all the time. They've created a national myth that, that a lot of people buy into to some degree or another. There's some. There are some North Koreans that don't believe it at all and are completely cynical. There are some that believe it a hundred percent. And you know, I've seen people crying as they've told stories of how Kim Il Sung took care of young soldiers or whatever. And Kim Jong Il gave his own boots in sure. the winter time. Yeah, sure, I'm I'm welling up a little bit right now. But <laughs> there's also everyone else in the middle that that believe aspects of it and maybe don't believe aspects of uh, some aspects of it. But the point is, or the salient point is, that this creates, I think, a relatively robust society. I think a lot of people make the mistake of assuming if there were no repression, you know, the society would immediately fall apart. But they mm. do have this national story that I think binds people together. Is it the institutions that matter most in North Korea or is it the big men at the top? I don't think it's either or, you know, the big man slash men at the top are an institution in and of themselves and probably the most important institution in the country. But uh, all the other institutions that create uh, this nation state really matter, whether it's education, you know, so I've seen young children of about three years old singing songs praising Kim Jong-un. And the way they become inculcated is obviously massively important. And then there are institutions of repression that uh, make sure that you do not express any political doubts you might have or are punished for them if you have them. Uh, and then there are the, I guess, more mundane institutions of the state as well that all contribute, I think, to a, a type of stability. But what about in, in terms of uh, decision making? Is it a you know? There's always this debate: is it a collective decision making process? Do these committees and commissions mean something, or is it just that Kim or somebody who he appoints says this is how it's going to be, and everyone just says okay, that's how it's going to be? Yeah, again, I think it's it's some of both. You know, the the maximal leader is clearly the most important individual in the system, but he is just a person in the system and has to take into account inputs from these other institutions and individuals. I think one tricky thing is though sometimes a person will disappear from a committee or the Politburo or whatever and then a lot of the times our inclination is to say like, oh, well, that person has been shunted out mm. and no longer has Purged. a voice. But I, th I think there are some individuals that are so influential that that isn't necessarily the case and they still have their inputs even without the institutional oh, So even when they don't have a title, yeah. that they still have some influence. Yeah. What Have you seen evidence of that? Uh, I, I think probably the recent sort of disappearance of Kim Yong-chol is perhaps an example. And again, there's always guesswork with this mm. kind of thing, this kind of thing. But I read uh, his retreat as an expression of the fact that the state was shifting to a period of dialogue and that, that required elevating the foreign ministry and the individuals associated with that. Now, if that period is ending, you know, maybe we'll see him uh, more visible again. But I don't think that meant that he was out in the countryside, you know, farming for re-education purposes or, or what have you. Um, what, as far as you know, does the leadership of North Korea want for the nation and for its people? I think primarily they want stability and they want to economic and political yeah i mean they're all forms in, they're interrelated and i think they want to maintain their privileged position in society i think beyond that different individuals and institutions have different preferences and 
that is something that I think is is very clear. There are some institutions and some people that are interested more in developing the economy, and there are others whose kind of bureaucratic and personal preferences are for greater control. And those groups are often in some degree of conflict. And here's here's a point of disagreement uh, between some scholars and myself. I think that is often very clear to the outside world. One example was in 2014 during the Ebola crisis, mm-hmm. where I think that, sorry, not crisis, it was a non-crisis. But, but Ebola quarantine, can we call yeah, that? Yeah, so basically for four or five months, the country shut down as it has done this as, year yeah. in 2020, except back then Ebola didn't make it to Asia, right? right? So this was an incredibly distant issue. The sort of economy first people were so frustrated by this policy, they were a little more vocal to foreign interlocutors than than normal, you know, pointing out people or institutions that were using this Ebola as a pretext to clamp down. And yeah, so that was an example of us getting a glimpse into sort of that internal dialogue mm-hmm. that that takes place. A lot of the time we don't we don't really get to see it. What kind of people are drawn to visit North Korea repeatedly? I mean, obviously, anyone can choose to go there once for curiosity. But what what, are the, what do we know about the kinds of people who go back again and again and then choose to do something in or with North Korea? I'm talking a project-based or company-based or NGO or something like that. Yeah, uh, there's... There's a lot of different reasons. Obviously, you know, there's kind of a missionary community that feel called by a higher power to to make a difference. I think there are people like me who believe that that maybe there were approaches and avenues untried that that we, that we could attempt. It would be dishonest of me to admit that it, there's you know there's a there is a mystery about this country and feeling like you have a bit more access to that mystery or you're uncovering things that are unknown to the outside world that is exciting mm-hmm. and you know that's the that's the reason i'm here talking to you and have a book out and all that kind of stuff as well so you, you know it, it makes you interesting because this country is interesting and difficult it makes people kind of interested in what you have to say so there's there's some of that as well Let's talk about Chaucon Exchange. What is it and how did you become involved with it Yeah, and, and why? Yeah, I guess actually I should also mention in that group of what kind of people get into North Korea. There are people who are just genuine humanitarians and secularists who see a need and this, you know, neglect this country that's neglected by its its own leadership and to some extent by the outside world and, you know, devote themselves to kind of an impassioned attempt to, to help the, the people of North Korea, who, of course, did not choose to be born there. Mm. You know, for, for me, I, I visited once. I was doing a PhD about North Korea. I'd never been and was like at the lowest moment. <laughs> I was like, what am I doing this for? I should at least go have a look at the country and see if it interests me enough to keep writing about this for years and years. So I booked uh, a trip as a tourist and went and it, it did kind of, it did fascinate me. And I thought, you know, I, I want to figure out a way to actually work with North Koreans. I was introduced a few months later to a Singaporean called Jeffrey C., who was just starting Joseon Exchange, a project to teach North Koreans entrepreneurship and economic policy. And at this early stage in 2010, with much unformed and, you know, a lot of possible ways we could have gone, I, I started getting involved. And a couple of years later, we... We both came on full-time, and uh, what that basically entailed was running workshops in Pyongyang, so collecting small groups of volunteers, going to Pyongyang, teaching for four or five days, coming back out, using that time in-country to select people to come out to Singapore or Vietnam for longer training sessions, a bit more of investment, you know, more expensive to bring people out. Um, And yeah, so from 2013 to 16, we were very busy. I was probably going seven, eight times a year at, at that point to, to North Korea, as well as two, three trips of North Koreans abroad. Mm. Um, but as the nuclear crisis has progressed and sanctions have increased, it's become more and more difficult. And uh, I left in 2018, so I haven't been involved for a couple of years. In those early uh, heady days at Chorsten Exchange, how did you define success and measure results? I mean, how did you know if you were having an impact with these workshops that you were running? That's always the tricky thing with aid or capacity building generally, but especially in a place that is 
deliberately information scarce. Mm. You know, we so we would conduct kind of satisfaction surveys at the end of of workshops and we would talk to people to try and find what kind of projects or or businesses they were implementing or what changes they were making but you know that's it's not a normal operating environment so it's always a challenge to to describe exactly what's happening i i tend to think we were feeding into trends that were already taking place this younger generation of people that are less ideological more interested in how to make money and how to run the economy, um, trying to support people that were already thinking in th- this kind of new new way. Because at the end of the day, in the early Kim Jong-un years, not only had there been nearly two decades of bottom-up marketization, but there was a real interest in, at the top at exploring economic policies that would make the economy more efficient, more effective. I do think some of that has been rolled back in the last couple of years as uh, Peter Ward, who often writes for NK Pro, yeah. is tracking very closely. But there was a period there where there was less central control, control and more autonomy for business people and less you know, interference. And so that, that was a positive moment, and we were, we were trying to support, support that. Uh, this group that you've just described to me of uh, younger, less ideologically inclined people who are interested in making money, are these the, typically the people who would benefit most from the, uh, the Chosen Exchange workshops in North Korea? In, in a way, you, you need a mix of like older and younger people because younger people don't yet have the influence mm. in their institutions and older people tend not to get what's going on as, as quickly. Uh, so you didn't need, need a mix of age groups if you were hoping to be effective, I would say. But the, the younger people, you know, what's, what's amazing is that, you know, if you're now, say, 30 uh, or even a bit older, Kim Il-sung to you is basically a historical figure. Mm. And the old system where the state distributed everything for you and told you where you were going to work and where you were going to live, that, that is, you, you never really remembered it. Um, and if you were a little bit older, let's say you're, you're in your early 40s now, you kind of just remember that system falling apart. Right. And so I do think people that are 40 and un- younger have a really fundamentally different outlook from people who are, say, 50, 60, 70. How are the workshop participants chosen? Is it a self-selecting group? Is there a screening process? So there's an in-country partner for Chosen Exchange. And depending on the topic, we would ask them to find participants. Sometimes we would try to identify ministries or universities or companies we thought should participate. You know, we would also say, obviously, you know more people than we do. You know, whoever you think is, is relevant, please invite them. Sometimes there were individuals that we thought were talented or useful, and we'd, we'd try to make sure that they got re-invited. And we would provide them with updated list of, of uh, people on UN sanctions or, or the US especially designated nationals list and say, don't invite these people. Oh, hopefully. Um, okay, yeah. And then for picking people uh, to come abroad, which again, as I mentioned, more of an investment on our side, I, we started out doing interviews, so interviewing everybody in a workshop. And when there were 25 people, that was still pretty exhausting. It would mm. take me at least a day to go through every eligible candidate. When the workshop started getting bigger, 40, 50, eventually now 60, 70, 80, now even 100 people in a domestic workshop, that became impractical. So we started trying to use focus groups and getting the volunteer workshop leaders, the people teaching the content, to identify people through conversation or through the workshop uh, program that they thought were worthwhile to invest in. Is there an entrepreneurial class in North Korea? And if so, are they what people, uh, some people call donju or money masters? Yeah, well, there are entrepreneurial classes, and this again, I think, is is something that people tend to get wrong, or or they conflate the class interests of uh, anybody that has has money. Uh, so, you know, if you're a woman running a noodle factory out of your house and you've got five employees, your neighbor, you're doing well enough that you start bringing your neighbors in, and and then you grow enough to have ten employees, you're not in the same social position as somebody running a major conglomerate in Pyongyang that's making everything from snacks to uh, cigarettes to, you know, transportation, logistics. Those, those people's interests are not that similar in a lot of ways. Having the state expropriate as little of their property is, but in general, you know, you're, you're totally different. But you'd have to call both of those 
people entrepreneurial mm-hmm. to, to some extent. It's also the class interests of particularly the people at the top in North Korea, I think is something that we don't think enough about in the outside world, especially as it comes to North Korean rhetoric on unification. And I don't know if that's something you want to get into. Uh, it wasn't, but it might be now. Let me just make a note about that. Unification rhetoric. Okay. Uh, when you went to North Korea with Chosen Exchange, was it like when you went as a tourist that you have a government minder with you at all times? Yeah, I mean, we tended to call them partners. Um, there, I think there are some misconceptions about the, that minder system in North Korea. It's not like they send two state security guys to to track you and box you in wherever you go. What happens is the people you're working with, so you know, guides in the tourism industry or workshop organizers with what we were doing, they are responsible for you. So they can get in trouble if you wander off on your own or or you know leave bibles lying around or, or all the numerous ways you you can get in trouble. So it's still that system. That's something they've just been unwilling to let go of and mm. is such a huge fetter on the success that, that they'll be able to have. In your book uh, called Being in North Korea, you write a chapter about North Korea's economy yeah. uh, and its somewhat difficult relationship with the concept of reform. Why does North Korea not like the word reform and why does it seem unwilling or unable to both deeply and radically uh, overhaul its economy? I think reform implies that there's something wrong and needs to be needs to be fixed. I think that's the simple answer. I think there's also just this real rhetorical commitment to socialism and juche and everything else that makes up the ideology of the state. And in some ways, they're, they're, they're so rigid about it. They're so dogmatic about what the state should be that, yeah, you, you run into issues like we face where, you know, they're really, they're really sensitive about the kind of language that we use to describe our programs at, at Joseon Exchange. I think it's also why they don't want to show foreigners the markets generally, or if they do, they're very strict about not taking pictures while you're in in a market. Have you been to the markets uh, on your trips with Chosen Exchange? Yeah, there's two markets in North Korea that foreigners are allowed to visit. One is Tongyeol Market, the big one in Pyongyang, and the other is up in Rasan. Um, They stopped inviting us to see Tongyeol Market a few years back. Mm. Do you know why? Rasan one. I think fundamentally some people know that that kind of bustling market is not representative of what the system should be so you know they they know that we know that looks a lot like the hustle and bustle of a market in any capitalist country and to them i think fundamentally that's a little bit embarrassing is it a kind of a a tacit recognition that the system that they wanted to create hasn't worked I think they worry that that's how we'll frame it as foreigners. You know, like we'll go out and write a blog and be like, oh, the market's so busy, people buying and selling using cash money. Um, and uh, somewhere near the top of society, there are people that wish that wasn't so. Mm. But there's over 500 of these markets now. Um, so it also speaks to, you know, they allow us to see two out of, <laughs> out of 500. Right. So it's something they're sensitive about. Is Chaucer Exchange teaching capitalism? I mean, I, I don't think that word is particularly helpful. It's teaching people how to start companies and it's teaching policymakers how to create policies that will allow people to be effective in running companies. Do the uh, North Korean institutions and partners that Chaucer Exchange partners with appreciate what it's doing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of, one of the features of working in North Korea in almost any field is you find yourself cooperating with your partners to overcome challenges that the system puts in your way. And that can be that the real feeling of solidarity comes in there, even though it's unspoken and, and often has to be unspoken. You and a North Korean are, I don't want to say scheming, but you are working hard to get around limitations whether that's with communication for example when you're in north korea you as a foreigner can have a sim card that lets you access the internet and call other foreigners in north korea but no north koreans you're not allowed to call a north korean number and once i was with one of our partners but i had to communicate something to 
another guy who had gone back to the office. Another North Korean. Yeah. In any other country, I would be able to call him up and say, hey, Mr. Kim, we got to change the plan. We're going to be there at six instead of five. In this case, what I had to do is get the North Korean guy I was with to call his colleague. And I shouted at the guy I was next to. I said, please tell Mr. Kim that we'll be there at six and blah. And, and the guy I was standing next to was like, did you get that? Did you hear that? Yeah, good, good. Yeah, what a great solution. Well, you know, how, well, how lovely. <laughs> you know, and I was like, what a stupid situation. Right. Uh, but th- those are the, <laughs> okay, maybe that time I felt more frustration than solidarity. But right. that's just a small example of how, you know, you end up getting close to the North Koreans you work with because you've faced shared challenges and kind of a similar vision for solutions. Another example of some of that solidarity that can be built is I I know of aid organizations who have longstanding relationships with North Korean partners who have said to them, listen, you know, the central authorities tell us that we should be getting this from you. But what we really need in this local community is, is this. So if you could find a way to include some of that, you know, that would be really helpful. And of course, the foreign counterpart does their best to to mm. do that. But that sort of flexibility in trying to overcome challenges created by the state, you know, it really happens. Yeah. Could you tell us about that time that uh, in, in one workshop for Chosen Exchange, one of your colleagues uh, created a Wi-Fi network in North Korea? Yeah. So he, he brought in a, a handful of tablets and had a session in which groups were brainstorming ideas and then sharing them with the broader group and trying to come up with the best solutions possible through through this sort of shared and diffuse experience rather than a top-down decision-making process. And it was tremendous because first, that idea I think is a powerful one uh, and in the context of business, something that you can express in North Korea. And also was very cool because it was allowing people to see what it's like to get on a Wi-Fi mm. network and communicate wirelessly with each other, something that- And share knowledge and stuff. Yeah, almost none of them would have had that mm. experience except for a handful who'd been abroad. So I thought that was a creative way to approach those issues. As far as you know, are there any China-based organizations trying to do similar work to Chosen Exchange within North Korea? Wouldn't it? Wouldn't you think that would be an easier fit for North Korea, having Chinese people come in and say, hey, here's how we still work within a socialist system but make money? Uh, I don't think so. I, I, I don't think that's uh, – I think the interests of the Chinese – people that are going to North Korea is primarily just to make money rather than train a broad group of North Koreans to do it better themselves. I guess it um, kind so, of surprised so not, me not that I know of. that the Chinese government never tried it. Because remember, there was that time back in the early 2000s when Kim Jong-il went down to yeah. I don't know, Shenzhen and whoever was in charge then, this is uh, before Xi Jinping said to Kim Jong-il, see, this is what you guys can have too. And Kim Jong-il's like, eh, not really sure about that. And I, I just kind of wonder why the Chinese government has never tried to uh, create a... Uh, you know, NGO, I'm making air quotes, uh, yeah. and send it into North Korea to do a bit of that. Yeah, you'd think it would make sense from, from their the, perspective. Yeah, Relatively the small investment and right. possibly returns that they would they would like. They, In general, I don't think the Chinese are that great at soft power globally, and nor are they in, in North Korea. So this is probably one of many missed opportunities. <laughs> I, I can tell you, in Rasan, we ran a couple of workshops and an official there said, explicitly to me like oh the chinese never do anything like this wow. this is the first time indeed it took us three years just to set it up in rasan mm. yeah um could you tell us a bit about what is uh, rent seeking and and in what way does it exist in north korea and how did you see that uh, through your work it's an economics term for a behavior that doesn't contribute to productivity but but skims uh skims profits from productive parts of society so it's it's uh you know taking taking a piece of pie that you haven't helped bake and did you see it at work in north korea not really directly yeah a lot is still hidden from us you know um so one one participant did say once for example that uh, she was responsible for coming up with a better accounting system for her company and i was like oh you know what does that what does that mean a better accounting system and she's like ah you know more accurate and you know better for profits which i read into as meaning like allowing less to be be taken off the top by by some you know ministry or state institution that that would come with its hands out i guess the only kind of corruption 
I saw was extremely minor, you know, somebody having like a misspelling on their visa and the the border guard being like, well, that's 40 euros, I'm afraid, you know, just a number made mm. up off the top of his head, that kind of thing. And that's one of the ways indeed that North Korea has been become like a developing country almost anywhere and has been a real fundamental transformation there. Because I think back in the 80s, early 90s it was a country where corruption didn't exist in the way that it does in most places like you you can really bribe your way hither and dither um but but not with money because money was such a it was was you know almost yeah. almost useless there. right like a so non-monetized economy yeah. yeah you know it was a, a society where you improved your lot through loyalty and mm. execution of your tasks that the party set down as as you know well as you can but that loyalty you can't really like trade for tv or for access to the neighboring province or whatever now it's often said that north korea seems to be its own worst enemy and that it claims to want x but then does things that would prevent x from happening would you agree with that sort of characterization sure i mean the the they say a lot of things that i think they don't mean um uh, or or they only partially mean so you know if the country claims it's going to be become a sci-tech world power as it has for the last few years okay well you know are you going to give your people widespread access to the internet because there's no way that you can become a cutting-edge technological powerhouse without this core absolutely crucial technology being diffuse um Kim Jong-un is interested in economic growth for his people. And I think his first few years in power demonstrated that he was to a degree that his father never was. But, you know, the state's interests are primarily in survival. And over the decades, it has come to see its nuclear program as key to mm. its survival, or at least some people in the state believe that. And fundamentally, that has created this situation in which it is a sanctioned country and isolated from the outside. And then also that impar imperative to control and limit, that's something that is wholly, I guess, native to North Korean political culture. And letting go of that is also going to be necessary for economic growth as well. The internet, we were just talking about, you're, you're not going to have successful businesses really and widespread until they can communicate with the outside world. I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of email addresses in North Korea, but not a lot of people are getting answers from them. Right. So if you're an investor and you're looking at making like a sock factory in Cambodia or North Korea, if you take sanctions away, assuming North Korea is not sanctioned, you're mm. still looking at a country where, you know, if you visit, you can't call anyone locally. You still have to be invited and be shadowed by two people at all times. If you leave the country, you have no guarantee that you can get a hold of anyone in a timely way. You're, maybe your emails bounce, can't send attachments, you know, whatever it is. Right. Um, so, you know, that imperative to control really, really hurts them as well. Now, even though, uh, as you said, you left uh, Chawson Exchange in 2018, you're still in touch with the founder, with Jeffrey C. Are projects still going ahead? Well, I, I think COVID ha has, with so much of the world, right. uh, really halted things. But even before, I think, think it's been hard to find funding the last couple of years and so i think projects have been limited there are a core of volunteers that keep a couple of in-country programs a year going i believe uh, but it, it's been a few years since there's been a trip abroad with north koreans now some people uh, who are perhaps not fans of chosen exchange would attempt to uh would would characterize it as either on on the one side particularly a group that's trying to change north korea by stealth from within or on the other side a pro north korea sympathizer group uh, is it merely somewhere in the middle or is it uh, completely different uh well if somewhere in the middle is a place where reasonable people are, are trying to affect positive change then yeah somewhere in the middle as i said before you know we identified some trends in north korea that we thought were positive mm. and we're trying to support you know those changes um fundamentally it's going to be up to the north koreans themselves what direction they they go but i think increasingly there are people there who realize this kind of the nuclear program and confrontation with the u.s are a dead end in many ways, maybe unfortunately a sustainable dead end. Like my great fear is that North Korea gets stuck kind of here, 
if a breakthrough with the United States is not to be found, uh, they still have this powerful backer in China that wants to see them survive. And they have this real apparatus of repression that they can lean on, even if people become increasingly discontent with how difficult their lives get. And we could be at sort of this moment for a really long mm. time. What's the best argument against the type of engagement that you have engaged in and how do you counter it? I mean, the, the argument is that by supplying things that the state is unwilling to supply, they can then use those resources for their nuclear program or for other things. I think Is that called a replacement argument? Or, or perhaps more broadly that you're helping stabilize the state by improving things on the ground. So I think the argument against is if you if you just apply a bit more pressure and isolate them a bit more, you can get them to capitulate and then approach the world from a weaker position and have to make the changes that we, we want to see. Uh, I, For me, I think... Wait, that that's not an argument against... It's saying that instead, by cooperating with them and improving the lot of people living in North Korea, you're stabilizing the system. Mm. And instead, if we were to pressure, ah. if pressure them and create an environment where they're forced to capitulate in some yep. way to the outside world, then we'd get what we want uh, more readily. And your response to that is? I So I think there's a time for pressure and there's a time for engagement. Indeed, sometimes that those are, are um, concurrent. And finding the mix is extremely difficult um, because I think with North Korea, a state that is as rhetorically belligerent as it is and whose strategic interests are in opposition to the U.S., with them testing long-range missiles and nuclear weapons, fundamentally, some kind of reaction has to has to take place. So I don't I, I don't want to give the impression that I'm just all like engage all the time, you know, give 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 give. But fundamentally, I think that pressure has to be about getting them to a place where they compromise with some of these programs mm -hmm. and some of their human rights issues. If we think that we'll pressure them into absolute capitulation, I think, I think we're in for disappointment. And that's because, as I've said, I think it's quite a robust and stable society, partly because of the myths that they have made and partly because of the apparatus of repression. But then also there's China, and China wants the DPRK to exist and mm -hmm. has the resources to help it continue for a long time. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit uh, and talk. Well, first of all, trigger warning to our listeners. Uh, we are two uh, white cisgendered Western men who are about to talk about women in North Korea in as much as we can. Uh, what can we say about women in North Korea? Are there women in North Korea? Sure. Yep. There's over over half. Okay. And and what do we know? What do we know about their situation? About their lot, as it were. Uh, well, this is an incredibly patriarchal society. Uh, you just have to look at, at the leadership charts or the, the stage photographs after a Supreme People's Assembly to see man after man after man. Yeah, it's um, almost a full man, with the exception of maybe a Kim Yo-jong in there or, or back in the day, Kim jong hee Yeah, so um, you have an, a very male state. And yet when it comes to the bottom-up marketization, the people in the 1990s who found ways to survive and trade and make uh, goods that they could sell, you know, those were primarily women. So... That, I think, is problematic. It leads to that extractive or rent-seeking rent state often being a male uh, approaching a female trying to get things done. And I think that can lead to a, a lot of things we would, in the West, class as sexual harassment or exploitation. Gender norms are very rigid there, you know, very traditional society in terms of what is expected out of out of your gender. So I've met many young women who are in their mid-20s and are like, ah, oh, you know, the pressure to get married is is huge and, like, I want to keep focusing on my career, but I, I know that's not really expected of me. When I've described this to South Koreans, uh, many have said, like, oh, yeah, yeah it's just, just like here 20, mm. 20, 30 years ago. And when I've actually, a different note, when I've shown pictures, particularly of the countryside, to South Koreans, they're like, oh, yeah, I remember that from when I was a kid in the 70s or or whatever. So that lack of exposure to some of these liberal Western ideas about, you know, the role, role of men and women in society, which, of course, we're, in, we're, neg we're negotiating right now where yeah. we come from. Th those haven't really penetrated. Now, uh, a year or so ago, 
perhaps more. I had uh, Teodora Gupchanova on from uh, NKDB who talked about uh, women's menstrual health in North Korea. Yeah. Uh, you might have heard that one. Is there anything new that's happened? Like what, what can we say about women's access to uh, obstetrician, obstetrician gynecologists and also to simple, very everyday things like sanitary napkins? Yeah, there's, there's an organization called Koreana Connect, which I think is worth paying attention to, that is dedicated to focusing on women's issues in North Korea and has done a study, like a consumer report uh, about uh, menstrual health in North Korea that is quite interesting and easy to read. Um, and it's Koreana with a C. Is it Koreana Connect? Yeah, that's right. Two, two Cs in the Neo-Latin. I think if we're trying to think about ways that we can cooperate and improve the lives of North Koreans and improve the human rights of North Koreans, I think there's a handful of issues that we could we could try to uh, attack first or mm. uh, you know approach first i think women's issues something they they're they're ready to discuss uh, anything related to children and the health of the child and education rights that kind of thing they're willing to discuss so from from my perspective if we ever enter a phase where there is to be more cooperation and attempt an attempt to change the relationship between the West and North Korea. We should start trying to work on some of the easier human rights first. I don't think going in and, and saying like, okay, let's work on the prison camps right. from day one is is going to is going to work. So start with women. Yeah, women, maybe children. The the big success story over the last several years has been the rights of the disabled in mm. North Korea, and that's partly because of pressure. Uh, and the COI report and like a campaign of public awareness. But it's also, and I think to a greater extent, because of a handful of European NGOs that have been very dedicated and tireless and patient in campaigning with the North Korea, for the North Koreans to make changes in their system. Um, so that's a good example, I would say, of how pressure and engagement can operate together to improve the lives of some North Koreans. Has the uh, apparent rise of Kim Jong-un's sister Kim Yo-jong in the last few months signaled any potential progress in the situation for women in general, or is she just very exceptional by being a member of the Kim clan? Yeah, I think she's exceptional. She's an outlier. In fact, you and I were party to some debates about whether or not the, the fact that she's a woman mm -hmm. is more of a detraction from her ability to wield power than than the than the uh the fact that she's part of the back to bloodline which obviously is a major plus mm, yeah. yeah is it is it practical and wise to bring moral questions into uh engaging with north korea in a positive way yeah i, I don't think uh it's possible to avoid um it's it's a country that is so problematic in how it behaves to the outside world and in, in how it treats its own citizens in many, many ways that if you're not thinking through what the consequences of your actions are, you're, you're being derelict. Um, and I, I think, again, that's one of those things where North Korea is unique in how it conducts itself. But if you're operating there, you're asking yourself some of the same questions as if you're operating in a lot of really difficult conflict places. Um, you know, whether it's Rwanda or China or 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 anywhere. Mm. Um, fundamentally, there's a lot of countries in the world where the leadership are venal and selfish and don't care about their citizens, care about their place in society. And if we didn't work in any of those places, um, I don't know, that, that's problematic too. Now, you are, amongst many things, uh, also an American. That's That's true. Uh, what does your country get wrong about North Korea? Um, I don't know. Again, you know, we're talking about a complex entity. When you say the government, there's all these different institutions and individuals and, you know, who gets what right and who's who. That, mm. that changes a lot over, over time. I think that there's still probably a lot of people in Washington, D.C. who think that if pressure can just be ramped up if we can just have a few more sanctions applied if we can just enforce them a little better then the north koreans will be compelled to come back to the table from a weaker position which is kind of the same uh, line for the last 26 years right since more or less the death of kim il-sung yeah and there's a lot of inertia also like you're talking about a country that has burned successive generations of diplomats and you know, NGOs and advocates for, you know, exchange and compromise, right? Because if you look at the Leap Day deal, for example, the people in the State Department who negotiated that 
you, you know, they they had what they thought was a deal, and then three weeks later, North Korea announces that they're going they're going to launch a satellite. You know, that was 2012. Mm. If you're the Obama administration and you're looking at a world of problems again, are you going to keep investing your political capital into this one extremely difficult country? Eh, not really. So. That's that's part of the difficulty we're going to face when it comes to making a deal eventually is same anywhere when it comes to making peace. It has to be a good enough deal that both sides can go back to really skeptical constituents, in, in this case Pyongyang and DC, mm. and say, listen, this isn't perfect. It's not everything that we want, but it's good enough and we should give it a try. Now, speaking of a deal, some people say that all North Korea wants and needs is a peace treaty with the United States, and then sanctions could be lifted, North Korea's economy could grow, and all would be well with Northeast Asia, if not the world. Is it as simple as that? I do think there's some naivety among some adv advocates of peace that just believe that, you know, if you, you make that deal and the U.S. changes its quote-unquote hostile policy, then North Korea will open up and, and you know, uh, it's going to be more complicated and arduous than that. And fundamentally, a peace deal is also going to have to come with some behavior changes from the North Koreans. And you're not just talking about denuclearization. I mean, that's, that's the key uh. issue, obviously. But, you know, human rights come into it as, as well. For a deal to stick, it's going to have to take all of the adversaries that are parties to this conflict to modify their behavior. And that won't happen overnight. It'll happen in stages. There will be setbacks. But um, ultimately, you know, I fear that the window of 2018-19 is maybe closed. But I, th I do think we'll come back around to trying again at some point because... There's only there's only three ways out of this conflict, right? There's the total victory of one side or the other, or there is a compromise. Did I say three ways? Yeah, it's, you did. Sounds like two. Mm, it does. Uh, the last couple of years have seen a real roller coaster in DPRK USA relations. How have you coped with that? Uh, it's been emotional, Jacko. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, it, you know, the Trump presidency has been unique in so many ways. And uh, he really has, um, I think, in the long run, maybe done something good when it comes to North Korea, which he's, which is normalizing talks with them. And I think there is more consensus in Washington D.C. that you know it is okay to talk to the North Koreans. You know, it is something we'll probably have to do again, maybe under more stable and less tumultuous domestic political circumstances it will be interesting to see if the democrats hold on to that idea that it's okay to talk have you heard anyone in the biden political camp uh say you know well we should keep talking to them i mean he spoke carefully about you know being principled and dealing with the the north koreans which i read as as a commitment to talk about it later <laughs> um which I think is probably the right thing to do. I mean, the, the, the U.S. is really concerned with a couple of other major issues right now. Mm. That's also why, you know, in the last couple of weeks or so, there's been a bit of speculation about whether another last-ditch attempt in, for talks between the U.S. and North Korea is possible. You know, it's certainly something that I think the Blue House here in Seoul would like to see. But I don't know if that really uh, makes sense right now for any party with the election coming up in November and COVID running around and so you don't necessarily see it as a good idea to have another summit before the November election. Well, so I want to see a deal that is comprehensive but also gradual mm. enough that it has a chance of succeeding and I think there's every chance that if they try to strike something quick before the end of the year it will fall apart the way previous attempts between the US and North Korea have. Looking at uh, President, Trump, President Trump's uh, track record the last uh, three and a half years, do you see an actual strategy there behind his approaches with North Korea, or did it all just turn out to be mostly ego and messy narcissism? I think, uh, no, I think there is a, a degree of strategy. I mean, I think Bolton, John Bolton's book has been interesting uh, because it gave a peek into some of the disagreements within the administration. But that's also something I think that's worth paying attention, attention to on the North Korean side, too. I think one of the tragedies of the collapse of talks at Hanoi is we didn't really get to find out how willing Kim Jong-un was to go back to his skeptics in his inner circle and say, listen, 
you know, here's here's the deal. It's not perfect, but let's give it a try. Um, I think what Hanoi did was it really crippled anyone that wanted to make that ar- argument in North Korean policymaking circles. That's what I mean when I say the deal has to be comprehensive enough and robust enough that people can take it home and, and sell it to skeptics. What hope is there for North Korea in the next 10 years? Where could we see progress in the mid to long term future that would lead to an improvement in the lives of ordinary people? Fundamentally, it's going to take a breakthrough with the United States. And it's also going to take a bit of bravery at the top to make, I think, the rules of society look a little bit more like they do in Vietnam or China. Um, North Korea is a little bit boxed in by the system they've created. Elites in North Korea don't really want to live in that system. You know, their opportunities are limited as well. Um, so it's going to take a, a bit of bravery to to change that. Where would you like to see USDPRK relations in 2030, 10 years from now? I think I'd like to uh, echo what Steve Began said at Stanford last year, which is, you know, he would like to see the, the last nukes shipped out and the embassies go up in DC and Pyongyang on the same day and like a range of activities start that increase interactions between the two countries. Did he say that for 2030? Uh, I don't think he okay. specified a year, but, but you know, like that, that, was his, that was his sentiment. You, I mean, you I, were I, in the room when he gave that speech, right? That's right. Did that give you a lot of hope at that time? Did you think, this is still before Hanoi, did you think, wow, yeah. you know, it's, it's going to happen? Yeah, I, th- I think he was making uh, a case to the North Koreans that was as positive as anything they've heard out of Washington, uh, a high official in Washington, D.C. ever. Now, it, it's somewhat remarkable to me that he's still in the position that he's in, even though you know we, we've moved on a year and a half and that's all come to naught. Does it, I don't know, I don't even know what question to ask. <laughs> Have you got any thoughts about that? I, I mean, I, I think that clearly he adds value in a lot of different ways to the State Department and to the administration. And so. he's not a career diplomat, which is interesting, right? He's a, he's right. a businessman. Uh, is he, Hotelier, uh, or he, something? he was. He, he had some political roles oh, before, did. but then I think moved over to the private sector as a consultant. Okay. I mean, not a consultant, as an executive that was focused on kind of the diplomacy of big business. What can non-Korean people who want to help improve the lives of ordinary Koreans or who want to help North Korea improve its relations globally? What can they best do? Should they join an NGO, start a business, become an academic, seek to influence government policy? I think what they should do is gain expertise in a field that maybe the North Koreans aren't ready to hear about right now, but will be someday. So North Korea is a small field and it is full of dead ends. Uh, But if you are an expert, say, on how Vietnam managed its transition from communal farming to private farming, or if you are an expert on commercial law or whatever, I think that will give you useful expertise for for when North Korea is ready to hear about it. Mm. So areas like logistics and development, yeah, projects. That's yeah, get get a skill and then use it later. Don't don't be like I'll be a North Korea expert. Right, we'll see where that leads. That is. Don't do it, folks. Some people who uh, do work in North Korea are very cautious about what they say outside to protect their continued access. But, you know, you've uh, said some things on the record, not here, not not just here, but in your book and elsewhere, that could be seen as being critical. How do you balance that? I think, I mean, you, you have to be sensitive to the needs of of people you're working with and, and that system to some degree. But, you know, if you refuse to say anything honest or earnest at all, I think that that is bad for one's soul. Um, Are you hoping to go back there again after publishing this book? I, you know, I've been there quite a bit. I'm happy to let someone else uh, do the the heavy lifting for a while. That book again is uh, (laughs) Being in North Korea. I I, I think, I haven't said this before, but I think that uh, your title should have been The Unbearable Lightness of Being in North Korea. Indeed, I thought it should be too, but I I ran that idea by a few people and some were like, oh, that's a great idea, but it doesn't make sense, or it's a great idea, but it's so pretentious, or that's a great idea, but you're an idiot, don't do it. The the feedback was pretty negative, so I really appreciate that you are positive on it. Good thing no one said that to Milan Kundera when publishing that novel back in the 80s. Uh, Andre, last question. If you were to go back to the period before your first involvement in North Korea and had to do it all over again, would you do anything differently? 
Um, I think I would follow the advice that I gave moments ago, which is that I probably would have developed expertise in a particular field and country elsewhere that I thought would be applicable to North Korea in the future. I think that's really what's needed and also you know, provides better career options uh, as well. Yeah. Excellent advice. Thank you very much once again for joining me on the show today and good luck with your book and other future projects. Thanks very much.